0: Well, today it's Kazakhstan, of course, that I'll be looking at, but I am not a Kazakhstan specialist, and believe it or not, and many people say not, just simply because they were all part of the former Soviet Union does not mean that a Russia specialist can pontificate about what's going on in every single one of the post-Soviet countries. So I'll be looking at it very much from the Russian side. I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia, In Moscow Shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash Shadows. But now, on with today's programme. Now before we start, I, in a previous podcast, mentioned my frankly dissatisfaction with many attempts to try and make predictions, because what tends to happen is either they are way, way too general, there will be some degree of discontent within Russia, or something like that, or else they may be more specific and even dramatic, but what happens is when it comes down to it, we have a tendency to tout our triumphs and forget our fails, On the other hand, I have been getting some requests from my esteemed patrons to move beyond those kind of very sort of personally oriented uh, predictions I made in the previous podcast and and talk more broadly about what I imagine is going to happen this year. Uh, Well, as I say, I'm a little bit resistant. However, let it not be said that I do not cater for my patrons' every whim. So, what I'm going to do is this. I will have a podcast in which I try and make predictions in response to questions that, that come in from you, the audience. And first of all, I will try and be as specific as possible. Now, I mean, I'm not going to say, you know, sort of necessarily to the day or to the month, but, you know, sort of I'm going to try and move beyond the sort of the, the very broad and therefore thus essentially meaningless ones. And perhaps most importantly, I will, in a podcast at the end of this year or the beginning of the next go through all of my predictions and look at whether they came true, and if not, why I think they didn't. In other words, why I got it wrong. So this might actually make the exercise a little bit more meaningful and a little bit more useful. So, there we go. In the next 10 days, I would ask if people do have questions that they want me to, to make my predictions about, this is your chance to, to get them sent to me. Now, patrons, obviously, patrons will get privileged access and they can do so through the Patreon site, but everyone else can as well. You can either send me a message through Twitter or you can go to the In Moscow Shadow website and there there is a contact form you can use. So, if you really want Mystic Mark to weigh in about anything Russia related, now's your chance to get in your request. Anyway, on to Kazakhstan. And the interesting thing is that Kazakhstan always seemed to be the stable one. This is a a ridiculous caricature of Central Asia, but um, Kyrgyzstan seems periodically to descend into chaos. Uzbekistan, vicious authoritarianism. Tajikistan consistently flirting with failed state status. Turkmenistan being, let's be honest, the, the weirdest, with... Niyazov, Sapur Murat Niyazov, who adopted the title Turkmenbashi, father of all Turkmen, and among other aspects of his personality cult, erected, I mean, this is extraordinary, a rotating 12 meter tall, $12 million cost, golden statue of himself that rotates always to be facing the sun. Now, when Turkmenbashi died, he was succeeded by Gurbanguli Berdimukhamedov who, again, absolutely has a, an extraordinary personality cult. And particularly, I mean, we, we see state TV channels constantly showing him doing everything from DJing to showing his crack-sharp shooting skills, flying a fighter plane, trick horse riding. Is there anything that this man cannot do? Weightlifting in Parliament, you name it. Sorry, in, in Cabinet, rather. Anyway, in this context, Kazakhstan seemed to be, as I said, the relatively stable one. It was relatively rich, the country and the elite, if not necessarily all the population. Stable, subject only to the usual sins of a hydrocarbon-rich authoritarianism. Uh, I remember actually, it was quite interesting, I've only been to to Kazakhstan once, let me just lay that out here and now before, again, anyone thinks I have any claim to expertise there. The former capital, Almaty, to me very much felt like a provincial Russian city. Frankly, if you took away the street signs and, and the people, and just dropped me in the middle of it, I would have thought that I was in some kind of Siberian regional capital. On the other hand, the the new capital that uh, strongman long-term leader Nur Sultan Nazarbayev built for himself, which I keep thinking of as Astana, even though it's been renamed Nur Sultan. There you go. Talk about personality cults. Was this rather kind of surreal, brand new city? I always feel of it as sort of uh, Islamic Shanghai in, in terms of architecture. And there's all these sort of grand, tall towers and such like. And then you come to a ring road. And then, whereas most cities peter out gently, this just stopped. And suddenly there is just nothing but step and the constantly blowing wind. So anyway, strange place, it seemed to me. What we've seen there is... Days of protests essentially driven by fuel price rises and underlying issues of inequality and deep, deep institutional corruption led to an unexpected explosion of violence in which suddenly what seemed to be peaceful protests either metastasized or were hijacked by a violent minority. I think the latter is more likely. In response, after a period of vacillation, there was a harsh crackdown. The current president, Tokayev, removed Nazarbayev from his kind of overseer position, father of the nation's secretary, sorry, uh, chairman of the Security Council, which was meant to be a position that was his for life, and also carried out an, an, a series of, of uh, arrests, including the arrest of the ex head of the KNB, which is the sort of Kazakh KGB. At this time also we had Tokayev make an invitation to the CSTO, Collective Security Treaty Organization, which was never really actually achieved its status but kind of was presented as the kind of Eurasian NATO. And Russia and various other CSTO members agreed to send in forces which very quickly arrived. Now, look, there is a lot that is really quite iffy about the story, and we really don't know at this moment what it is. These the, the sudden emergence of these black-clothed provocateurs and looters in what had originally looked like a rather peaceful protest. The fact that there's also been the arrest of an organised crime figure and a claim that they were involved, but was he actually acting on his own bat or was he simply an instrument, a cat's paw of others... There are claims that some of these people actually spoke Arabic. Ay, who knows? One of the problems we have is precisely that there's a relative paucity of independent journalists in country at the moment. Most of the uh, sort of broadcast stuff we're getting is from Kazakh or Russian state media. And therefore, you know, until we really have eyes on the ground and, and the chance for people to sort of chew over the analysis, that's going to be a problem. But I'll come back to that in a moment. Now, as I said, given that uh, I'm not a Kazakhstan specialist, I really want to kind of focus on the external and obviously largely Russian focused angle of this. So let me just kind of address a few particular questions. First of all, now the CSTO has in the past not really got involved in domestic issues. And frankly, that's part of its charter. So why did it get involved this time? And particularly given that it sent a relatively small force. I'll talk more about the actual size of the force um, at the moment. But one that it's hard to see that the Tokayev regime really needed, because it does have a rather substantial security force of its own at its disposal. Well, it could be because Tokayev didn't quite trust the security forces, as I'll come on to in a moment. There is an element in this that looks very much as if it involves intra-elite rivalries. But it also is, in some ways, as a token of support. It's really a kind of political marker That says that Russia and the other countries, but primarily Russia, recognize the legitimacy of the Tokayev regime and is willing to underwrite it. Because where you can send a couple of thousand troops, you can, in theory, send more in the future. Perhaps more interesting is why, I mean, that, that might be why Tokayev wanted these forces, but why did they say yes? Well... I mean, Tokayev made this likely, I think it's fair to say, fanciful claim of foreign instigators, of terrorists with camps in the hills and so forth, who were actually behind the violence. Now, again, as I said, that is actually pretty dubious, but probably it was the convenient uh, fiction that was used to allow Tokayev to trigger the CSTO's requirements. Because according to Article 4 of the CSTO Treaty, you can get support from your fellow members in the case of external aggression. So he needed, in effect, to be able to spin the troubles that were going on in Kazakhstan as not being an essentially domestic rising, but being the result of foreign pressure. So in part, I suppose it also tends to kind of like sugarcoat the, the notion of the deployment of foreign troops, but I think to a large extent this was just a, a cynical way round the CSTO's own, own um, guidelines. And this time, well, why, why did it agree? Well, in the past, the CSTO has not really been a serious actor in the region, or frankly, at all. Um, the, the scholar Roy Allison, back in 2018, called it, and the separate Shanghai Cooperation Organization, a force really for what he called protective integration. In other words, you know, it doesn't actually create substantive regional integration or collective problem solving. Rather, it just kind of forms a, a club in support of the status quo in support of member states regime security their stability and their legitimacy and if anything he felt it was actually becoming more diffuse less useful really more of a kind of a hangover from an old time well that may well be true but actually i would suggest that this might actually explain why moscow in particular is looking to explore whether it can become something more real I think that was the CSTO as was. We might be entering a new era in which actually the CSTO becomes something more substantial. And this is why Kazakhstan's crisis was treated not, for example, the way it happened in in Kyrgyzstan in 2020, when again CSTO decided absolutely it it wasn't going to get involved when, when there were popular protests. So watch this space, but I wonder if in some ways the CSTO It's going to become a little bit like the Holy Alliance that was drawn up by Tsar Alexander I in 1815 and signed onto by the Austro-Hungarian Empire and by Prussia. With the goal of suppressing revolutionary sentiment, remember they were all terrified about this after the French Revolution, and to uphold the divine right of kings, protect Christian values, and generally maintain the existing order. And this was, after all, to provide the basis for Tsar Nicholas I's later role as the gendarme of Europe. So, in some ways, I think we might actually be seeing the the CSTO being given a little bit more of a twist, in some ways as a way of structuring but also legitimating Russia's role within this region as a protector of the status quo. That suits both local elites, but also Moscow, because in a way, they all know where they are. Now at the same time, second point I want to make is look, in any case, Russia could not ignore what was going on in Kazakhstan. The Russian-Kazakh border is the second longest land border in the world, even longer than the Russo-Chinese one. There's a large ethnic Russian minority, almost a quarter of the Kazakh population. And although, actually, ethnic relations are pretty harmonious, it seems, but nonetheless, you know, th- this is therefore an area that Russia not only feels it has to look at. Remember, this sort of, Moscow definitely regards itself, presents itself as the sort of champion of the wider Russian world. And there are also entirely practical issues, like, for example, the presence of space facilities, Russian space facilities at Baikonur Cosmodrome, in, in Kazakhstan. And look, there's, there's a lot of oil, there's gas, there's coal, there's uranium deposits. You know, I mean, for all these reasons, stability matters to Russia. And I mean, there's also actually a, a China dimension, which I'll, I'll, I'll come to later. And what we've got is, despite a lot of the overheated takes, this is not an invasion. Remember, The Russians and the other CSTO forces, small numbers, were invited in by the current standing and legitimate government. Kazakhstan is not occupied. Now, I mean, I mean, officially, there's just 2,500 Russian troops. Now, some claim much, much more based on either the number of planes that are meant to be deployed or just kind of habitual mistrust of Moscow, but no real evidence. It's not implausible that the force might now be as large as, say, 5,000 troops. The point is that those people who try and do the, the arithmetical game ...of just totting up the number of aircraft that are meant to be deployed to the air group in support of this operation... ...which is 70 big ILs Ilyushin 76 lifters and five the massive Antonov-124s. Now, if you assume that they're all in use and they're all bringing Russian paratroopers to Kazakhstan... ...then yes, you get a much larger force. But, first of all, a lot of them are also going to be carrying things like supplies... Secondly, not all of them are actually in the air. Just because you allocate this air group to this operation does not mean that they're all actually being used. And thirdly, we also know that the Russian planes are being used to ferry in other countries' contingents. So, you know, we have to be cautious. We don't know. Either way, look, even, even let's assume it's 5,000 troops, which, as I said, is, is, is the high end of the current credible, plausible sort of estimates. Kazakhstan is a country that is larger than all of Western Europe put together. Now, it's very sparsely populated, to be sure, but still has a population of just under 19 million. And, arguably more to the point, it's got more than 100,000 troops of its own and another 30,000 of the paramilitary National Guard security forces. So, yes, this is a sign of Russian support for Tokayev. And Moscow is probably going to hope to make some kind of political profit from it. I mean, of course it would. What country in that position wouldn't? Let's be honest. But the idea that this is more than just simply a a political statement, given form in camouflage and body armour, rather than just some kind of military takeover, that's still deeply implausible. We'd have to see a lot more signs of them, you know, securing the presidential palace and all the other kind of coup indicators, shall we say, to go beyond that. Rather, this is, in my opinion, Moscow demonstrating what is, after all, its main claim to hegemony in Central Asia its status as a security provider. And put very, very bluntly and admittedly simplistically, the countries in the region, they want Chinese money and Russian muscle. Beijing's Belt and Road Initiative, whereby it you know, has its massive infrastructure investment programmes, with, with also, a, it has to be said, a side order and political influence, you know, now that, from their point of view, is a great source of investment. And, of course, investment means embezzlement. So let, let's be clear about that. But no one seriously expects or probably wants the Chinese to be doing more than making it rain money. If you're worried about jihadists from Afghanistan, or indeed your own people, it's the Russians you turn to. In the West, we obviously tend to judge Moscow, this is understandable, by its aggressive adventurism in, in Moldova, we too often forget poor Moldova, in Georgia and in Ukraine, and so we should obviously. But for regimes in Central Asia, perhaps a little bit less troubled by European concerns and abstract notions of international law and human rights and the like, the Russians have often proven to be very, very useful and, yes, even reliable allies. Classic example, 201st base in Tajikistan. It's a Russian military base there with about 7,000 troops, mainly Russian, a few Tajiks still. And, you know, it's, this is actually very popular in Dushanbe especially as a gateway for weapons and training to the Tajik military, and now actually as a marker to the Taliban that says, look, if you either launch or allow cross-border incursions from jihadists, you will not just be facing the Tajiks, you will be facing the Russians and indeed the whole CSTO. So actually, again, from their point of view, however surreal it may sound, they are happy to have Russian troops on their soil. And this matters to Moscow. There there is a quiet and deeply uncomfortable recognition of China's growing role in Central Asia. And that while on the surface Russia may play the role of regional hegemon, Beijing doesn't care so much about the appearances of power and influence so long as it gets to do whatever it wants to do in the area. Um, But meanwhile... Moscow knows that its status is heavily based on the security dimension of its presence there. So it needs to show, and sometimes I would say to to regularly show, that it is continuing to be able and willing to fulfil that role. And to be blunt, it is regularly willing to put the capacity for violence where its promises are. And so in that respect, its Kazakhstan deployment is not simply something it could do, it's something that I'm sure it felt it had to do. Let's have a break, and then let's move on to something about, again, the nature of the Russian deployment. Just a usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti or on Facebook, Mark Gagliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. So, as I've said, there's been a lot of hot takes, and it's well worth actually slowing down. I mean, this claim, Nazarbayev is dead. No, he's Astana. Oh, sorry. Nur Sultan, or maybe he's in Almaty. It's an anti Tokayev coup. No, it's a coup by Tokayev, or maybe it's a move by Tokayev to protect Nazarbayev from a coup by people who seem to be pro Nazarbayev. Oh, come on. We need to let the dust settle. We need, as I say, eyes on the ground. But on that particular note, I mean, a quick word about Colonel General Andrei Serdukov, the Russian officer in charge of the joint CSTO force. And again, I would stress it is joint. It's not just Russians, it's also a small contingents of Armenians, Tajiks, Bielorussians, and and Kyrgyz. Now, this is something that I I, I tweeted about because there there are some, again, quick claims that because Serdyukov had also led operations in Crimea in 2014, had a command role in the Donbass operations, and also in Syria, then somehow this automatically meant that this was going to be another Crimea or another Donbass. Look, Russia is by far the largest contributor to the force and the effective leader of the CSTO. So, you know, it was gonna be a Russian officer who was in charge of it. That's neither surprising nor telling. And as for Sedyukov, he is the commander of the VDV, the, the, the air, Russian airborne forces who are supplying the Russian contingent. And he's also the kind of gung-ho, quick-thinking, lead from the front kind of officer whom you'd expect to rise within the Paris and also to be heading all kinds of fluid intervention operations. This is literally what they train for. In some ways, it would have been actually quite odd and telling if he hadn't been in charge. Now, the point I'm making is not really about Sergei specifically. It's about, unfortunately, the way that a lack of hard information rarely also constrains opinion. Quite the opposite. Punditry abhors a vacuum. And assumptions expand to fill the empty space left when there isn't information. So let's be careful out there. Or at least let's be honest and aware when we're speculating, as I'm about to do. If this does turn out to be an anti Nazarbayev coup, perhaps opportunistically on the basis of genuine street protests, and I suspect that's kind of probably the most likely thing, then it might sadly keep Putin in office for longer. Let me explain. The notion of Putin following Nazarbayev's example and moving from the presidency to a seemingly essentially honorific role, in Nazarbayev's case, as I say, chairman of the Security Council, in which actually he still maintains Um, really sort of as much power as he wants that he can get rid of the drudgery of the presidency and ascend to this father-of-the-nation role in which in a way he can backseat drive whenever he wants he can intervene to ensure certain policies get adopted or get avoided but he doesn't have to accept any of the responsibilities. I mean, in Putin's case, for example, it would be, you know, without having to sit through the direct line phone-in and pretend to care about his ordinary subjects' um, cares and concerns. Now, that was one notion that we had. Now, it didn't necessarily have to follow Nazarbayev's exact route. I mean, the Security Council in Russia is a very different structure from the Kazakh one. And, if anything, when we had the changes to the Russian constitution in 2020, it looked as if he might be preparing for himself just such a sort of semi-retirement bolt hole, perhaps as the chair of the state council, which is still a possible birth for him. But the main point is that Nazarbayev's example, an you know, 81-year-old man who, after all, up to this point, still seemed to be the, the dominant force in all of Kazakhstan, without, as us say, having to do the boring stuff. That seemed to be an example that could commend itself to Putin. After all, you know, it does look as if Putin is feeling himself tired, oppressed or bored by, by many of the actual duties. So, Nazarbayev was a kind of role model. However, as I said, I mean, Nazarbayev was meant to have that position for life, and the claim is now that uh, he actually voluntarily stepped down I'm not entirely convinced by that, especially when the claims about that come two days after the, the actual fact. If even constitutional guarantees of lifetime status and security can be yanked away from you by someone who is a presumed yes man, if your ex-political police chief can be arrested, and that's what we've seen, the ex-head of the KNB, Massimov, ha- has been charged with treason, well... It's a painful reminder that in this kind of cannibalistic political system, one where law takes second place to power, you can never be sure, you can never be safe. You are ultimately having to rely on the gratitude or the loyalty of people to whom you are then giving the power to destroy you. So it could be that what we've seen in Kazakhstan actually seals the deal for Putin and convinces him that, like a Soviet General Secretary, he's ultimately going to have to die in office if he wants to remain safe. I don't know, as I say, that is purely speculation, and it's something to be, to be thinking and, and, and watching for the future, but that was, that was my first thought, that Kazakhstan's gain may well prove to be Russia's loss. final thing I want to look at, though, is actually to talk briefly about what is being said in the, in the Russian press. In part, this is simply to gauge the mood. But it also reflects the fact that you know, although Ukraine has not had anything like the scale and stridency of coverage that we might expect given the massive troop build up on the border, and incidentally and parenthetically, mistrust that kind of pundit who simply looks at what the really extreme geopolitical shock jog TV sort of voices are saying, and extrapolates from that the Kremlin is telling the Russian people X. That is a particular genre that, yes, has a certain function, but its function is as much, frankly, infotainment as anything else. But anyway, going, going on, to, on, on, on to the newspapers, the interesting thing is that certainly at first, Kazakhstan got vastly more coverage, but not necessarily for long. Uh, I love the fact that, for example, the main story on Kazakhstan in the liberal news outlet Lenta, by Sunday it was now down in the running order below... Named the most popular sex toys amongst Russians. But before that point, there was more serious coverage. If one looks at uh, Rassizka Gazeta, which is the stodgy government paper of, I would say, a record, but let's say of Kremlin's record. Well, they interestingly, rather than editorialising themselves, uh, initially went back to the uh, ever-reliable renter quote, Vice Speaker of the Federation Council Konstantin Kozachov. Uh, And actually, they're they're simply citing an interview he had with with Videlmusti, Musti, who said that developments in Kazakhstan have shown that civil protests have escalated into a riot aimed at a coup d'etat. By Sunday, though, all they were doing was just simply citing Kazakh government reports on arrests that were made and so forth. So it's quite interesting, because it means, obviously, Rasidka Gazeta is very much going to be presenting the official line. But even here, there is that arm's length. Obviously, it recognises that sort of bad things have been happening. And obviously, there has to be a reason why, why Russian troops are going. But it's not really getting involved. It's not actually heavily editorialising. You know, and even other pro-government papers aren't necessarily getting so, so closely involved in the story. They're, they're, they're reporting it a lot, because it's a big story about, about violence and chaos and so forth, but they're not, for example, spinning this as, one might have expected, a Western-based insurrection. They're not presenting this as a colour revolution. Um, the, the tabloid Komsomolska Pravda, for example, very much uh, talks up the, the bloody excitement. Um, you know, on Saturday, it, it was saying you know, January the 5th, Almaty, tortured by marauders, saw a bloody battle at Nazarbayev's residence, hunting rifles against machine guns. How many dozens of people died there? Everything is still covered in blood. But then the authorities marched across Almaty, menacingly, shooting at everything. I mean, and yes, this is the, um, the, the, the tenor of Komsomolskaya Pravda, and indeed Russian, tabloid journalism. But again, this is the interesting thing, that you know, even by Sunday... When things had slightly stabilised, I mean, they were saying, people flee from riot-ridden Kazakhstan. And even when they're giving positive news, power is back, shops are opening, but there is shooting in the streets. Uh, This is very much presenting almost a a plague on both your houses story that says, yes, there, there was anarchy and insurgency from the streets... But there was also excessive violence from, from the government. And in that respect, I think actually Komsomolska Pravda is really providing a pretty good measure of public opinion, this kind of plague on both your houses notion. Because snap polls have shown that most Russians do not want to see their troops in, in Kazakhstan. And you know, very much will be expecting this, what is meant to be, after all, a short, limited uh, duration intervention to be just that. Then let's turn to Moskovsky Komsomolets. Well, here it's interesting that, um, I mean, again, on on, on Saturday, they were definitely sort of giving something of a a rather sceptical edge. They ask why Russia supported President Tokayev, who violated the Constitution? And that is indeed the case. He did when he removed Nazarbayev. And go on, in foreign policy, Putin looks more like a pragmatic Nicholas I than the romantic Alexander I. Now, I'll be honest, I wasn't quite sure whether to be peeved or encouraged by by that last point, because I had my notion that this was a little bit like the CSTO becoming the Holy Alliance before I read that, and yet this is exactly the uh, point that is being raised here. But again, you know, these, these are not, shall we say, especially positive historical parallels to be drawing. So, you know, it looks at the moment as if there isn't a particularly strong media steer coming from the Kremlin, first of all, and secondly, there isn't a particular enthusiasm. If we look to the sometimes more liberal and um, honestly slightly erratic Nezovissima Gazeta, actually, interestingly, at first they, they, they took quite a gung-ho line. I mean, they, for example, ...cited the case of this video that came out... the so-called Front for the Liberation of Kazakhstan... You know, four masked men with machine guns... You know, ...posing in front of a flag of Kazakhstan... ...in you know, classic jihadist video type stuff... ...and calling on Kazakhs to fight their CSTO troops... ...and the Tokayev government. Now, the interesting thing is that this is being framed as... ...as actually being a Ukrainian military intelligence... ...piece of psychological warfare operations... After all, no one had ever heard of this Front for the Liberation of Kazakhstan and gave very little credence to it. Well, I mean, it's very iffy, the claims that they had Ukrainian accents or whatever. The real debate about this uh, almost certainly spurious video um, is, well, that, is this from the Tokayev regime trying to again demonstrate this point that, it, that the protests are being generated or at least hijacked by jihadists or something? Or indeed, some would claim that it was actually the the Russians who were behind it. But the interesting point is that Nezevismaya Gazeta presents it rather than questions it. But the most interesting bit of the coverage from Nezevismaya, from my point, was when it chose to highlight that, speaking after the Orthodox Christmas service at the Cathedral of Christ the Saviour, Kirill, patriarch of Moscow and all Russia, and often a sort of strong supporter of Putin's, said, we all know that the most difficult events are taking place on the territory of our once united huge country. People are clashing, blood is being shed, and, and this is very close to us. It is on the territory of historical Russia, and therefore we cannot be indifferent to the shedding of blood. A territory of historical Russia? Yes, there are ethnic Russians in northern Kazakhstan, Although by now, frankly, they just happen to be ethnic Russian Kazakh citizens, and in the main seem perfectly comfortable with that. It's an interesting and bizarre insight, though, because this is not part of, in any way, historical Russia. These are essentially 19th and 20th century colonists and their successors. Is this really where the Russian world is going? Well... I don't think we should read too much into it. I think this is just an interesting insight in particularly how Kirill, and to a lesser extent the whole Orthodox Church hierarchy, tend to work. Kirill often tries to predict what the Kremlin wants and to try and jump ahead so that he's already there on its path so that he can curry favour. And sometimes he gets it right and sometimes he doesn't. I suspect this is a case in which he doesn't. Because if northern Kazakhstan, as part of the Russian world, suddenly becomes much more of a factor, first of all, it will annoy the Kazakh regime. Secondly, it will actually create a a policy constraint for the Kremlin. At present, they have considerable room to pivot back and forth. They can present Kazakhstan as a a neighbourly country they have to support. They can present it as a sovereign nation, nothing to do with us. They can, they can pitch it in all kinds of different ways. If all of a sudden Kazakhstan becomes regarded as part of the Russian world, then the Kremlin is going to have to think much more about its nationalist flank, about the consistency of its message, and yes, they do have to care about that. And as I say, this will become a constraint on policy. But Kirill may not be thinking that way. So in this respect, you know, actually, all these crises provide interesting case studies in how Russian political actors, these political entrepreneurs who are constantly trying to catch the attention of the Kremlin and please the boss and then gain the benefits thereof, how they try and interpret breaking news as political opportunities. So, what can I draw from this? Well, again, early days, there's no clear message, at least not yet. But there is obviously signs of a genuine concern in Moscow. Not so much about uh, the specifics, but about really the case. It it just simply wants to have a stable interlocutor in Kazakhstan with whom it can deal and which is willing to accept, shall we say, the forms of Russian hegemony, even though there is an unspoken deal here that you pretend to subordinate yourself to us in, in return, we will promise not to actually try and make good on that claim. So it's, it's really cosplaying regional hegemony more than anything else. But nonetheless, that is important to Moscow, and therefore they want to continue it. There is a, I would say, cautious dislike of the regime amongst Russians, which is probably not entirely um, unrepresentative of some of the official views. Stabilizing Kazakhstan is a necessity but the point is, this is meant to be a very limited, very temporary commitment. We really shouldn't forget the degree to which the shadow of Afghanistan, the Soviet Afghanistan, shall you say war, still looms over a lot of people within the security and foreign policy establishment. Remember, you know, the people at the top of this system, many of those actually had experiences of the war. As combatants, in the case of many within the higher ranks of the Russian military. And again, this this easy notion of moving into a Central Asian country, expecting it to be a short-lived thing. I think it's one of the reasons why the Russians are being much, much more limited and much, much more constrained and, and cautious here. Kazakhstan and Afghanistan are in no way similar. But I just think there is a certain sort of neuralgia about deployments in, in Central Asia. So I don't think there's going to be any willingness to make this more open-ended or more extensive than it has to be. Because I don't think Russians at all are cheering it, and I don't think the Kremlin wants it. It's a big story, but I don't think it's a long story. There you go. There's a little prediction of sorts. And on that note, let me remind you that if you want Mystic Mark to gaze into his crystal ball and deal his tarot cards to try and predict what we might see in 2022... You've got 10 days from today, Sunday the 9th of January, to let me know. Patrons who get priority can do it through the Patreon site. Everyone else, you can send me a message through Twitter, or you can go onto the In Moscow Shadow website and use the contact form. I look forward to seeing what you have for me. But for now, thanks very much as ever for listening. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows, follow me on Twitter, at Mark Gagliotti, or Facebook, Mark Gagliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash In Moscow Shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well.